Two and a Half Admins, episode 79. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, your customary blog post plug, Alan, is the free BSD boot process. No system D here. Yeah, although uh, the focus of this is more the parts before you get to init and so on. But it's an article that basically details how a computer actually starts up from basically the time the BIOS or firmware hands off through to when you, you get like a login prompt in the OS. Uh, and really describes how it has evolved over the last 25, 30 years and how many different pieces you can plug in to get different results. Right, well, link in the show notes as usual. I found an article in The Guardian. Most hard drives have a lifespan of three to five years. Have you checked yours lately? And the photo is the junk drawer with the smashed old phone and loads of external hard drives that have just been stuck there. I thought it might be interesting to have a look at this article and assess what we think of the advice in it. Well, the advice to check things is good, but the blanket statement of like a three to five year lifespan is utterly meaningless because they they haven't described, are they talking about like operating lifespan? Like, you know, how long will the drive continue to function when actively used in a PC? Are they talking about cold data retention? If you just put it in a drawer with valuable data on it, you know, how long can you expect that data to remain accessible? And, you know, they say, hard drive, but you know, there's, there's rotating hard drives and there's solid state drives and there's, and you know, all these things are very different. So the, the core idea that, you know, you should be thinking about this is great, but I don't love the way they boiled it down into an over simple, ultimately can't possibly be accurate log line up the top. That's generally how these things work though. Doesn't have to, I've done better. Exactly. It doesn't have to be. But yes, it's like most drives have a warranty period of three to five years. And do you want to be using it outside of that? But yeah, I think what Jim mentioned too, especially is the offline parts. Part of one of the things they talk about is, oh, solid state drives don't have any moving parts, so they're more durable. It's like, yes, but depending on your use case, that might actually be worse at, you know, it's going to sit on a shelf for years and then I'm going to plug it in and want my data back a spinning drive might have a better chance of retaining that. Not just might, almost certainly will. Cold retention periods are absolutely not great for solid-state drives, particularly consumer solid-state drives. If you're trying to do cold data storage on solid-state, I would recommend checking it pretty thoroughly uh, at least every six months. And by check it pretty thoroughly, I mean, not just like, you know, oh, I, I did an LS and I see a bunch of file names there. I mean, you know, like the... If not a, a you know a ZFS ZPool scrub, the equivalent that actually reads all the blocks and verifies them before it's done. One of the reasons for that is it's you're, you not only need to verify that all the data is still there, and you don't have some cells that have lost so much charge that they can no longer be accurately read. You also need to give the drive's firmware a chance to refresh any of those cells that are starting to get you know a little stale. Because as the, the cells bleed charge, you know, the ones that are charged that do have data in them, now older solid state drive firmware would just kind of quietly ignore it. But at least in theory, all modern drive firmware should detect, oh, hey, it's been, you know, X amount of time since this cell has been charged. I need to go ahead and rewrite this data again to make sure that it doesn't just rot away out from underneath me. But if you're not actively reading every single block that has data on it, the firmware has no way of getting that done for you. And then even a spinning hard drive, you probably want to power it up like every six months or so just to get everything spinning and make sure that the lube doesn't dry out and that the bearings don't 
get stuck in the same position and so on. But yeah, and to Jim's point, the other one is, yeah, like a, a, a spinning hard drive has enough life for three to five years of power on time. But, you know, after so many hours of, of just age as well, or so many years of age, the drive's probably not large enough to be that useful and it's just not going to be that reliable. And you maybe want to consider, why don't I copy all the data off these three old external hard drives to one bigger, newer one that's A, it's going to refresh all my data and B, it's going to, you know, increase the lifespan a bit. It was interesting. We were seeing even uh, a conversation on Twitter the other day. We're getting to the point where some of the CDs that we burned when we were in high school and so on have gotten to the point where they're actually not readable anymore. Oh, we've long since passed that point. <laughs> yeah, I've got wallets full that are just corrupt and just not readable. Yeah, they've just rotted. And so it turns out that most of this stuff is not forever. And, you know, they tried to tell us CDs are good for 100 years, but turns out, no. We talk about pulling these things to check them every six months, but, you know, what do you do when you pull it to check it and it's dead? Do you just now know it's dead or do you have another backup somewhere? If you don't have another backup somewhere, then it doesn't necessarily help you to know that that thing is gone. And in the case of the SSDs, you're not just checking to see that it works. You know, you're, you're also, like I said, potentially refreshing the charge in cells that, you know, have degraded. But we're coming back to the point that I make to a lot of people pretty frequently, which is I don't really recommend cold storage for normal people. Because by the time you know there's a problem, it's too late. All you know is there was a problem and now your data is gone. You don't have any recourse. In the vast majority of circumstances, the best place for your data is in a computer that's actively monitoring it and maintaining it and, you know, keeping it up to date all the time for you, preferably also with some redundancy and a backup. And, you know, now we're just back to the same thing that we said in like almost every episode of this podcast ever. But this is why. If you've got, for example, a ZFS system, let's say that you're, you know, a relatively small user, you don't have that much data, you've just got like a NAS with a simple two-drive mirror in it. Well, okay, great. Now, if you have a bit rot problem and one drive or the other, or one drive or the other fails, you've got redundancy to keep you going, you can replace that drive. Also, though, you need to have backup. You know, you need to have another drive or two in another machine that you replicate to so that if and when, you know, that whole NAS, just like the SATA controller in it, goes berserk and just blasts garbage across both disks simultaneously, which is a thing that does happen. I have personally seen it happen quite a few times. Well, that's when you go to have the backup. You, you get the backup and you restore everything from there. If you're missing any of those pieces, you're just, you're, you're going to lose data. But this is an article on The Guardian. This is not Ars Technica or Pharonics. Yeah, but this is 2.5 admins. This is not The Guardian. We're talking about The Guardian article. We're not writing for The Guardian. I know, but the point that I was about to make was people reading this article probably shouldn't be messing with this stuff. They should be outsourcing it. Much like email we talked about a few episodes ago. They should just be using the cloud. The first point of The Guardian article is... It's important to inform people that that SSD they have in the drawer isn't going to magically keep that data alive forever, and they should consider that. And then, yes, maybe their solution is they should copy it into some cloud somewhere. Although, tying that into another topic we had, watch out for the free cloud that's suddenly going to be not free someday. Oh, yeah. You expect to pay for it, yeah. Or have quotas. But yeah, it comes down to the other adage we like to have. If there's not three copies of it, it doesn't really exist. And so, you know, you should have your coffee of it and then a backup and then probably another one. And to Joe's point, maybe 
some of those should be things you don't manage because how many of you have time to manage that? And then maybe to their point that, you know, if you're actually thinking about it once in every six months, you'll quickly realize that you want it to be somebody else's problem or realize that if I care enough about this data to check on it every six months, why don't I have more copies of it so I don't have to care so much? Well, and let's be honest here. If you're only checking on it like every six months and nobody's like paying you to check it every six months and yelling at you, if you don't, you are very quickly going to, that six months is going to turn into 12 and then you're just going to quit doing it. That's just human nature, which is why, again, my recommendation is, you know, skip all that. Don't rely on yourself to check a thing every six months. Set it up where you've got automated monitoring and maintenance and it does everything for you. And there's no easier way to do that than ZFS. Exactly. You want it to call you when there's a problem, not you have to go and check on it. I disagree that there's no easier way. I think for the listeners of this show, it's the best way. But for their relatives, their friends who ask their advice, the easiest way is the cloud and maybe using a couple of different cloud providers, maybe Dropbox and Google Drive. Except that's not actually what the cloud is. The cloud loses your data all the freaking time. Microsoft has lost data of mine. Google has lost data of mine. Now, it may happen less frequently than, you know, Joe and Jane Sixpack managing their own data strictly locally in the house. But you can't just like wave a magic cloud wand and say problem taken care of. There's nobody on the cloud offering you free or super cheap storage that cares that much about your data. I'm not talking about free or even cheap. I'm saying this is going to cost you money, whether you're buying hard drives. And- Microsoft has lost data for people who are paying to store it. Amazon has lost data for people who were paying to store it. You're still responsible for having your own backups in addition to the cloud, like you're saying, multiple cloud providers. But, you know, sometimes it's not practical if you have terabytes of data either. Just like I don't have enough Internet to upload two terabytes to three different clouds. But you can't realistically expect non-technical people to have a server running ZFS in their house. Lots of them do. (laughs) But also, nobody listening to this show should be We probably have very few non-technical listeners. Let's just put it that way. Yes. But if someone comes to you for advice and your advice is set up a ZFS server and then you have to do it for them and you try and teach them how to do it, then you're just going to get constant headaches of them hassling you about it. But see, that's the thing. I'm, I'm really not... Because there, there, there are varying levels of support. You know, I could say, oh, well, you know, buy yourself a TrueNAS Mini or whatever, and I'm kind of walking away from it. Or we can say, you know, oh, well, you know, this is my mother, for example. So I'm going to go ahead and set up her home directory on her laptop on ZFS, and I'm going to set up automated replication of my backup server in my house. And, you know, I'm going to have that on my Nagios. And if something goes wrong with it, I know. I'm not relying on my mom to come let me know something went wrong because I've actually added this to my portfolio of things that I manage. And when I manage them, it doesn't take a whole lot of resources because I've got it all the way down to that science. It's very easy. Nagios checks zpool status. Nagios lets me know if there's checksum errors or a disk drops off or if the replication stops, any of that. And I'm not constantly fiddling, farting around with it. So there's a certain set of people that you do the whole money for, and it shouldn't be that hard because you know what you're doing. Or there's a certain set of people that, you know, you give the very generic advice of like, well, this is probably going to be the best fit for you. You can do, uh, you know, buy a TrueNAS Mini, or you can take that old PC that you've got lying around and install ZigmaNAS on it, or, you know, whatever. That's a relatively easy way to get most of this going 
to a point that works for everybody's set of resources, yours and theirs. Now, the other thing that you're kind of dancing around and didn't quite get there, Joe, but this was the drain you were circling around, is that not everybody has the resources to keep all of the data that they acquire actually safe. When you hear like Alan say, oh, well, I don't have enough bandwidth to upload two terabytes. Well, you've got a couple of possible decisions from there. One is, so I'll do all my backups locally, or I'll seed my two terabyte backup and then, you know, take a drive out so that now I only have to do incremental or to say, okay, realistically, I can't support all this data to this level of quality assurance. So maybe instead of like, you know, every single Linux ISO I have used the BitTorrent protocol to acquire over the last 20 (laughs) years, maybe you're not backing all that up. Maybe there is just a possibility that one day something goes wrong and that dies, but you still made the right choice for you because you didn't have the resources to maintain it permanently, but you did have the resources to make it convenient for you for a while. Meanwhile, the photos of your children or I don't know, of, you know, your dog or of the beers that you really liked or your guitars or whatever, the stuff that is truly unique only to you that there's not as much of, that you give a really high standard of care. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A to get started with $100 free credit. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user to ease of use and setup, It's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and more. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash 25A, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash 25A. Chrome OS is coming to devices that aren't just Chromebooks and Chromeboxes. Which is fantastic news. My family has been using Chromeboxes pretty extensively for the you know past couple of quarantined years. That's how we get all the kids' schoolwork done, at least the boys. Uh, Jane has graduated to a proper, no kidding, Ubuntu Linux desktop PC, but the boys are both still on Chromeboxes. And one of the reasons that Jane got upgraded to a proper Linux PC is she had a school project that needed to use Google Maps. And the little uh, Celeron in the Chromeboxes just was not up to, uh, actually Google Maps is okay. She had a project that required Google Earth Ah, and you can't even get through the flyby when you open Google Earth on, you know, the little crappy Celeron in the the cheap $200 Chrome boxes. So she got a full on Linux machine, but, um, I haven't had that issue quite yet with the boys, but it's, it's been in the back of my mind this whole time. And I have a couple of just generic, you know, small form factor PCs ready to go for them. But I, I had flirted with the idea of going ahead and preemptively replacing them using Cloud Ready. Now, Cloud Ready was a, a third-party product that was basically, you know, Chrome OS without the Google bits. And for most people, it effectively is good enough to be a Chromebox, but not so much if you're doing education stuff, where there ends up being a lot of things that absolutely do require the Googly bits. If you want to do like content management, if you want to keep your kids from going to the non-safe version of Google image searches, you know, things like that. Again, you need the Google stuff to match up with Google Family Link. 
So the fact that Google is now saying, hey, you're going to be able to get full-on, no kidding, Chrome OS on whatever random x86 hardware you've got lying around, I love that. <laughs> love it. Yep. So it'll be called Chrome OS Flex, and it's going to be available for PCs and Macs. Macs are PCs, Alan. Well, yes. I, I'm guessing it won't be available for the M1, but no, it would be no. silly to buy an M1 to run Chrome OS on at this point. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned Cloud Ready. That's what this is. Because Neverware, the company that were making that, was bought by Google. And so we've been wondering, when's this going to come? And sure enough, here we are. It is the same thing, but when it was not a Google product, it didn't have the Google bits in. And it still doesn't have all of them yet. Um, so the Chrome OS Flex is still kind of in a, a, a beta state right now. But they do have plans to put almost everything in from proper Chrome OS. Now, the one thing that is really big time missing that probably is not on Google's roadmap. They're saying that they're not really looking at integrating the Android Play Store into Chrome OS Flex the way it's already been integrated into proper Chrome OS devices, you know, actual Chromebooks and uh, Chrome boxes, which is a disappointment. If they hadn't said that, I'd be ready to replace my son's Chromebox with the much more powerful generic mini PC that I bought for him. But I know for a fact he plays like Minecraft and stuff, you know, from the <laughs> from the Android Play Store on his Chromebox. So if I did that right now, he would be very upset with me. Right. But this is aimed at enterprise and education. So you can kind of see why gaming is not a huge priority. Although with Android apps comes more than just gaming. A lot more than just gaming. Just because... My personal son's particular use case is a couple or three games on the Play Store doesn't mean that's like everybody's. Yeah, but then a lot of the stuff that you get off the Play Store, there are web apps for, like Slack, for example. Sure. But then again, you know, when you talk about like an EDU or enterprise setting, a lot of the time the web app isn't going to be enough because there may be an app that relies on integrating with the actual app and the web app won't do or, you know, there's... It's a lot of weird crap going on, even just at the very small EDU level when like the EDU is literally your three kids computers, you know, in your room upstairs and they're doing remote learning. There are a lot of times where the tiniest deviation from where this what the school is expecting just snowballs into much larger problems than you'd expect. So I think this is going to be great news for Windows 10 users because Microsoft put those ludicrous requirements in place for Windows 11. but now you've got a whole bunch of old laptops that are officially not supported by Windows 11 that will be supported by Chrome OS Flex, and it may force Microsoft's hand to lower those requirements. I don't think it's going to do the slightest thing to force Microsoft's hand. I think people who are willing to use Chrome OS instead of Windows, it's just that's not a thing that's going to move Microsoft's needle because the folks that were looking to make that transition they already had enough reasons to make it. I, I don't see, I can't have Windows 11 is really pushing somebody to make that leap. Yeah, and I think most of the type of end users we're talking about here don't think about upgrading their OS, right? They There's like, you know, the new OS comes with the new laptop. No, I'm thinking more organizations though, IT departments. I think even most of those nowadays would be looking at cycling to a new OS as part of the hardware refresh rather than trying to do in-place upgrades. Now, I think the really nice thing about it is that it gives you the opportunity to have Chrome OS on considerably more powerful hardware that you didn't have to go out and spend a mint on 
because, you know, it's it's just some laptop or some PC you had lying around and, you know, maybe you don't want that to be your main Windows box anymore. But, hey, now this makes a great, you know, Chrome OS device for a kid or for like, you know, simple couch browsing where like you just don't want to deal with all that. You basically just want a browser in a box, which, hey, turns out that's what that's for. Now, that's also, oddly enough, I think that could turn out to be really nice for Google because Google has been trying to get people interested in spending like serious cash on Chrome OS devices for a while, where what really got people interested in Chrome OS initially was the, you know, hey, I can go spend $200 and get like a snappy, nice to use laptop with a browser in it. This is the only way I can do that. And that makes me willing to use Chrome OS. Then Google says, oh, hey, we think you should buy this like $1,500 Chrome OS laptop. And everybody's like, what the hell is wrong with you? But again, I will say, having seen my own kids struggle when suddenly, you know, she needs to use Google Earth and in theory it would run on her Chromebook, but in fact, it's nowhere near powerful enough. Now being able to say, well, it becomes easy to give people a more powerful Chrome OS device that you already have lying around. That can also be good for Google and that it may erode that unwillingness to spend significant amounts of money on a from Google proper, expensive, powerful Chrome OS device. Yeah, and like I was saying, my mom doesn't use her laptop that much. And at some point, it'll need replacing. And I'm not going to settle her with Linux. So something like a Chrome OS that won't require any support from me ever might be the right choice. It's like, you know, take her old X220 and put Chrome OS on it, and she'll still be able to Facebook and whatever else she wants to do but I will know she's not going to manage to get a virus or whatever to the same degree. Wait, wait, wait. I'm putting my Joe Ressington hat on now. You did give her Linux. Chrome OS is Linux. You gave her a Linux PC and it's great. I haven't given it to her yet, but I can give her <laughs> Google Linux rather than Ubuntu or something. It's like, yeah, it's, it's like the thing on your phone. It'll be fine. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can learn more at 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan or any feedback, show at 2.5admins.com. So James writes to us, How do you detect intrusions or malware on your servers and networks? I have a small home lab, router running OpenBSD, Proxmox host with a couple of VMs. I try to follow the recommended hardening precautions and keep everything patched, but how do I know if something is actually breached? Do you run antivirus on your servers or other scanning software? Is network IDS and IDP worth the effort for a small home network? So there's a couple of different things to look at. Obvious things are if you're using things like two-factor authentication, if you get a two-factor prompt when you weren't expecting it, that, that can be set off some alarm bells. Telling that you're breached, sometimes that's just a matter of looking for processes that aren't supposed to be there, watching the login logs, like, you know, how was the last time each of these accounts logged in and so on. I don't know about OpenBSD, but on FreeBSD, there's a report that gets sent out every day that looks for, hey, a new set UID file appeared in this directory. If you didn't do that, that's a sign something is screwy and a bunch of things like that. For antivirus, I've not done much of it. I know there's like ClamAV and a couple other virus scanners that are available. Please do not use ClamAV. I've only used the antivirus stuff as part of uh, like email filtering. 
to look for virus attachments in email. I've never actually bothered like scanning the hard drive for viruses. And even then, spam filtering generally does a much better job of catching malware than the actual malware filtering does at the email level. A spam assassin will catch more more nasty crap in your email than uh, ClamAV or whatever other plugin you use to do fire scanning ever will. For IDS, uh, I've done a couple different things. You know, FreeBSD Update has an IDS built in where it can just check the SHA-256 of every operating system file and tell you if any of them are different than what they should be. I've used backups to do that before, like uh, Bacula has a, a system where you can compare to the catalog and tell if any files have been modified when they should have been or stuff like that. I've done a little bit of looking at stuff with the network, not that much really. I don't have much experience with that, especially at the home level. A lot of it just kind of depends on how paranoid are you feeling and how much effort do you want to invest in this. One of my favorite solutions for when you're feeling really paranoid is Tripwire. Tripwire can be configured to detect when files are changed in your mounted file system that maybe shouldn't be or you should know about it if they did. So if all of a sudden, you know, your your SSHD binary changes, it will let you know. And if you did not have a recent update, then that's an enormous red flag. The proper way to, to do that, of course, is, you know, you need to have multiple machines because you can't rely on a compromised machine to tell you it's compromised. You need a second machine checking the first machine to see if something changed that looks like it's going to be a problem and let you know about it. Another thing that you can do, if it's just sort of a deal, like every once in a while you want to kind of cast an eye over things and just make yourself feel a little better, if you've got any kind of network monitoring, like literally just the level of traffic on your network, you can look for sudden spikes of upload traffic. Uh, That's frequently going to be a big indication that you might have a problem because somebody's trying to exfil all your data out to the cloud or, or what have you. What, something like VNSTAT? Something like VNSTAT or, you know, literally just looking at network graphs, you know, on like if you've got an OpenSense or PFSense router, you can install NetData. Uh, NetData will give you some some pretty nice graphs. And of course, like I said, it just, it all keeps snowballing. You know, it's what tools are you familiar with? How much time are you willing to invest in it? For me, a lot of it really just boils down to, you know, system resource consumption. If it suddenly spikes and I don't know that I'm doing something, that's a red flag. And I've got Nagios monitoring all my systems. And if all of a sudden a system that normally has a load, you know, in between, I don't know, zero to three shoots up to 20, my phone's going to go in my pocket. I'm like, huh, what's up with that? And go take a look. Yeah, for sure. Stuff like that. You know, a paranoid friend of mine has logs on the DNS server that services his local LAN and it's like, hey, who's looking up this host name that I don't understand or whatever. But I think that's pretty paranoid. For your OpenBSD router or any BSD machines, really, there is the concept of something called secure levels, basically a security thing that you can ratchet up, but the only way to turn it back down is to restart the system. So when you turn up the secure level, it will do things like no longer allow the secure level to be lowered, no access to slash dev slash mem, uh, raw disk devices for mounted file systems are not accessible, you're read-only, so that people can't overwrite the file system while it's mounted. If you have the immutable or append-only flag set on files, they can't be removed once the secure level is cranked up. And you can even, uh, if you do to the higher secure mode, it actually freezes the PF firewall and NAT rules so that the firewall rules can't be changed. So if you need a firewall that's going to, you know, you're trusting it to protect your network, then you want, you know, set the rules 
and then basically freeze them in stone so that, you know, you're going to have to take the whole system down uh, in order to change the rules means that, you know, yeah, you'll know if the firewall goes down and it wasn't on purpose that you should look at it. But otherwise, you'll know that your firewall rules have not been modified. Although, again, there it's probably simpler just to set up, you know, a 2FA daemon on your OpenBSD router. And you're just looking for your phone to be like, hey, should I allow this login to the OpenBSD router? And you're like, shit, I'm not trying to shell into that thing. This is a problem. Kind of along the same lines, one of the things that I like to do in some environments, a lot of this depends on what your threat model is. Like if you're literally just like you've got a desktop, whether it's Linux or Windows or whatever, and the majority of what you're doing with it is going around and farting down around on the internet in a browser, well, your biggest threat is just going to be, you know, getting compromised you know, drive-by stuff. You know, you you get a nasty ad banner or whatever, and now you've got malicious JavaScript running in the browser. However, if you're worried about, you know, a more advanced persistent threat kind of scenario, like somebody has gotten into your network and is like, you know, looking through the whole thing and trying to get their fingers into all the places. And one of the neat things you can do is you can set up an internal honeypot. So you spin up a VM and you put SSH on it and you don't ever touch that thing, but you make sure you've got monitoring to let you know if somebody else does. Like if somebody tries to log into that honeypot, you immediately get alerted to that because nobody should be trying to get into that damn thing. You know it's inaccessible from the outside world. So if somebody's poking at it, they're in your network and that's a huge red flag. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your questions or feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.